Welcome to the Progressing Lives Everywhere podcast, brought to you by the Amoria Bond Group. In each episode, we feature prominent business leaders and industry experts sharing their personal experiences and inspiring anecdotes of what progression means to them and insights into their specialist fields, as well as tools, techniques, and practical steps we can all take to progress lives everywhere. Hi, I'm Natasha Crum, ESG Director at Moria Bond. Joining me today is tech entrepreneur, investor, author, experienced CEO and NED, and owner chair of Grimsby Town Football Club, Jason Stockwood, who's also been named by the Sunday Times as the UK's best leader. Welcome, Jason. Thanks for joining me. Morning, Natasha. It's probably the shortest introduction I've ever done on the podcast. Not because there wasn't much to say, Jason, but quite the opposite. Because to cover your experience properly, I think would have taken most of the episodes of the podcast. And I'm really keen to get into conversation with you as quickly as possible, because from our previous conversations, there's so much fascinating stuff that that I want to talk to you about today. But before we do, just for context, I've picked out a few key highlights, if you're happy for me to share that. So you've been CEO in a number of tech companies, such as Match.com and Simply Business. Your co-founder and partner at 53 Capital, a fund set up to invest in European e-commerce entrepreneurs. You have a degree in philosophy from Bolton University and an exec ed course from Harvard University. You're a fellow at the Blavatnik School of Government, I got there, <laughs> Oxford University's Department of Public Policy and advisor to the UK government as well. So Jason, a lot there, a lot I haven't covered. But let's start by asking, what does progression mean to you, Jason? So firstly, thanks for having me on. God, it sounds like this is your life, doesn't it, when you do that sort of recourse <laughs> and my career and that. Progression to me, as an entrepreneur, actually, there's a weird trait that I think that entrepreneurs have, and I definitely have it, which is I think that my next thing is probably going to be my most interesting and best and biggest thing. So wherever I've been in my life, I'm, I'm, I'm naturally curious and inquisitive. So I think progression for me is that sense of, that entrepreneurs have that you always think that your next thing's going to be your most interesting thing. So it's a very personal definition, I think, for everybody. But but for me, it's a sense that you're always moving forwards towards something bigger, better, and a better use of your resources, time, intellect, and capability. That's an interesting idea, that idea of continuously moving forward and, and, and what's next. And that reflects really, as we've, we've already referred to, in the fact that you have done so much, you are doing so much, you've achieved so much. And you're in what a lot of people would consider now a pretty privileged position, Jason. So I'm really interested to understand what motivates you now to continue to progress yourself and to also invest so much in progressing others as well, because I know that's something you're very passionate about. Yeah, look, I think my background was, you know, a lot of people helped me throughout my early early life. And you know, I'm a product of the welfare state, you know, I'm a council estate kid who, single parent family, free school meals, free housing, except for university, etc., I feel that, you know, throughout my career, hard work is a necessary condition of your success, but it's not sufficient. You know, there are many other reasons, variables and inputs into people's success, luck, timing, mentors, help, support, etc. And just luck as well, brute luck as well. So I'm, I'm conscious of that and I'm hyper aware of that, that there are people who are, and I'm not false modest, you know, I, I couldn't do the stuff I've done without confidence, but I do think, you know, there's a sense that, you know, there are people that are brighter than me, work harder than me, 
potentially, I've, you know, just maybe I've not had the breaks. And so if you recognise that, you recognise that there's there's somewhat of an obligation to, to do something about the position you find yourself in. So having come from, you know, relatively humble background and finding myself with resources, energy, time, to do the things that I'm doing, I feel that's that's a, a moral obligation that everyone should should hold, and that's not that's not to be pious about. It. I just think it's it's about fairness and recognizing that your success isn't entirely your own. And then the sort of slightly different answer is that you know I get a lot of energy and from being part of teams and working with people and seeing people reach their potential. It's, you know, it's a great joy in life to be able to to participate and partner with people on on their journeys that they go on and that is so so actually there's obviously an inverse relationship when you when you have that people think that you're doing something to help us but actually it's a tremendously energizing and rewarding experience to see people fulfill their potential but the big thing for me is that i've had a lot of help and support both at sort of macro level and an individual level throughout my career and i think people need to recognize that you know when they have a bit of success that there, there should be an obligation to do something about that so talking there about the people who've kind of been influential or who've helped you along your journey. What kind of help has that looked like? How, how has that kind of manifested itself? Well, there's, there's hundreds, right, for all of us. And so, you know, picking out individuals. I mean, the role models that we've all got, both people that we know, starting with parents. My mum was a grafter. I don't know who my dad is to this day, and that's obviously defined me in some way. My mum was a grafter, you know, she, was, she had three jobs when we were kids. So I remember you know, from being a cleaner, from being a debt collector and multiple other jobs working in pubs. So, you know, I think I think seeing a work ethic when I was younger has is, is always been important. I think that's characteristic of the where I'm from as well. Being from Grimsby, you know, there's something about people weren't scared of hard work. And I think that's, that's, that's a really positive trait for people taking to their life. And so, you know, there's a ton of intellectual heroes and writers that, you know, I'm big fans of. And even to this day, there's a bunch of people that I've worked with, both good and bad, actually. You know, mentors often can be role models of how not to do things as well, which people often underestimate. And then a lot of teachers at school. I, I realised when I was at school, and then I realised later on in life, there was a few teachers, because I didn't have many positive role models in my life as a kid, male role models in particular. There's a few teachers I look back that really looked after me, and I wasn't particularly academic at school. You know, I played a lot of sport, and so there were some of the sports teachers, and I always felt cared for when I look back on that. There's quite a few teachers that went out of their way to make sure I was all right and look after me and and put me in the right direction. And just picking up on that a little bit further, Jason, because what strikes me is you're really kind of driven and enthusiastic about being part of a team, being part of a collective. So is that something that you really look for in new opportunities rather than just doing stuff on your own? And has that changed over your career? Both actually. So I don't know, I don't know, like most people, we fall on sort of a continuum of introversion and extroversion. And I, I think we like like most people, we've got both. So, so there's times when, you know, I love being part of groups and, you know, you know, trying to find the right answer or solve problems collectively. And then I love that individual contribution. So, you know, I kind of spend days with groups and teams and really get a lot of energy from that. I get my energy from being around people. And there's time where I need to lock myself in a room and read and write as well. And probably in balance, actually, I'm probably equal in both in both terms. I value both. I need both. But look, we're social animals by by design, by nature, by evolution. So you know, there's something intrinsically important about connecting. And again, we could we could probably sport for hours about this. But you know, this is where I think both technology, our politics, and recent events with COVID have shown us that we thrive on connectivity, on conversation. You know, there's not an idea that can't be improved 
by talking about it with, with a group or sharing it. Or so, so for me, there's something intrinsic about the way we've evolved over the last four million years that is entirely social. There's loads written on this. And so I think recognising that, but also recognising that there is time for reflection and time to be alone. If you can find it with young kids, as you know, it's not always easy. Absolutely. And it's interesting. So, you know, as a successful entrepreneur yourself, and I know that there are lots of people wanting to gain insights from you as such a successful entrepreneur. It's interesting that you talk about that balance of the social and the kind of individual approach that you take. Do you think that, that that's a really critical part of being successful in an entrepreneurial business? What, what, are, the, what are the traits to success? In entrepreneurial businesses, would you say that, that there are? It's very individual. I mean, I, I'm always wary of people that try and create a, a recipe or a you know a diagnosis of success because once success is individual, you know, it, you know, for me, successful is a life well lived, and that can be different. You know, that comes from you know Aristotle and you know the Greek philosophers originally, and you can define what a life well lived is, and you can improve on that all the time. But you know. It's definitely not about money. I can tell you that, you know, the money is a is often seen as an end state as opposed to what it really is, is a vehicle towards other stuff. And I think people make that mistake. But you, I think being clear on what your values are and clear about what you're trying to achieve and also testing that, right, with coaches, with family, with friends, with mentors, you know, define what success looks like for you individually. And then, as I said to you before, for me, the ingredients that I found useful personally but is that you pick your partners, go on that journey. So technical skills that you need, find the people that have the technical skills that you don't and, you know, find the people that have the complementary personalities, skills that you and talents and, and, and variables that you don't and try and build something that is inclusive and as diverse as possible. That seems to be a good recipe for success in my experience. Second thing is keep learning, but just stay, stay curious and and inquisitive about all the things you don't know, all the things you're interested in. And, and that, that's, that's both energising and rewarding in of itself, I find. There's always something. You know, I was talking to my kids yesterday about, they had a debate in school about, are flying cars real? And so I had an amazing conversation with my son last night, who's nine, as you know, about, about showing him like all the flying cars that exist today. I said, go and show your teacher these, because you know, we've invested in, in, in some. So it's like, that's really exciting. I'm thinking, Christ, for our kids to grow up in a world where this stuff is real, flying cars are real, you know, where Hyperloop is real, where reprogramming your DNA is real, where AI is real. That's, that's hugely exciting. And we're on the vanguard of really interesting breakthroughs in technology. So that's energizing for me. And then importantly, find and live your values. Define what's important to you. You know, I, I designed my life a few years ago around making sure that I was going to be present for my, for my kids and for my wife. And I've had to make some choices about things I can and can't do as a result of that. But I knew that I didn't want my kids to grow up and not know me and not be present. So, you know, I want to be with them at breakfast and take them to school every day. And I want to have dinner with them every night. As a minimum, and I want to be with them at the weekends. And so, you know, if you work with that, then it's easy when you're making decisions about filtering choices through that lens. And like, it's not always perfect, but at least you have a mental model that you can operate on. I think being part of teams that are dynamic, diverse and inclusive, being clear on what you're trying to achieve and being clear on your values and then just keep learning, be humble to keep learning and reacting to whatever the universe throws at you is probably the most important characteristic. I love that. I love you reference there a few things that really resonated, the, the idea of that life well lived. And certainly you are someone who strikes me as being very clear on your values and the purpose of your life and what you do in business as well 
Just in terms of people who are aspiring to better applying that kind of purpose-driven, value-driven model or ethos to their businesses, are there any kind of methodologies or tools that you've seen or would recommend or could could refer to that that might be helpful for people who are kind of really inspired by that idea but don't quite know where to start they've sort of understood the theory they get it they want to do it but actually not quite sure how you do it I'm bound to pitch my own book in this so (laughs) the book I wrote a couple of years called Reboot it's not a perfect process so you know everyone is in a, a permanent state of becoming I don't want people to think and hear this and go, Christ, he's sorting his life, he's, he's executing on a plan. Life's messy, complicated. I wake up as miserable as most people some days and, you know, my kids are awful. My wife don't want to look at me. You know, so I have all the same issues everyone else does. There's parameters that I'm trying to operate in. And I think I've got clarity around that. But I also have got, you know, a decent amount of resilience from the way I've been brought up and the failures that I've had. That I'm not scared of, of failing or acknowledging that. And also I'm comfortable with noticing that any moment sort of a happiness or sadness that you have, it passes as well. Whereas when I was younger, I used to get quite intensely wrapped up in the emotions that I had in that moment. I think there's something about, I meditated a lot over the years as well. So, you know, recognising that, you know, your states of mind move on as well and understanding how your body operates and how your mind operates is quite a thing to think about as well. I used to hate Monday mornings, so I've never made big decisions in my life on Monday mornings. Simple, simple as that, right? Or you might be good late at night for being creative. And so, you know, leave your creative work. And I think understanding how you operate as an individual can be quite helpful as well. But my book was an attempt to try and think through some of these things, how we build happy human businesses in, in a digital age, you know, with the advanced technologies and, and sort of accelerating pace of life that we're living. I think for businesses, Eric Rees' books always inspired me. He wrote a book called The Lean Startup, I think probably about 10 or so years ago now. That's a brilliant book for thinking about how you get going as an entrepreneur. Uh, And often people think, you know, you build a a big product and you put it out in the universe and hope people just, you know, love it. And there's a whole, there's, there's actually a mechanical process of how you get products out and test them in front of real customers. And Eric Rees wrote that brilliant book that I always give and, and have recommended. We've used it as a textbook in businesses for people who haven't read that before. I think just take your inspiration from whoever you can. You can do it by listening to podcasts. I'm a big fan of um, the High Performance Podcast is one I love, you know, Damien Hughes and Jake Humphreys. I think there's just some inspiring insights into the minds of people that have, have, have been hugely successful. And then there's also, you know, biographies, you know, and just, you know, there's, there's an opportunity to learn and listen from people's stories but I'm more interested in the people that have failed than those telling you a recipe for success because you learn more about yourself in failure and in adversity than you do in you know winning stuff and accolades you know, the true measure of your character is what happens when things get going and things get tough and so I'm more interested in those types of stories as well and you know, it's interesting you mentioned in those those accolades earlier when you my introduction but I really don't think about those genuinely I'm like what's next because you can tend to rest on your laurels and it's, it's it's more important to project yourself forward all the time. And I'm actually more interested, the things that I remember, the things that have been informative for me are when things have gone wrong or when things have been challenging or when you've had a crisis to deal with. You, you take so much more into your soul in those moments than you do when you sell a business or when you, you, know, you win an award. It's nice in the moment, but it tends to be fleeting. But the stuff that really goes deep into your personality tends to be the stuff that's been challenging and problematic. Absolutely. And what struck me as you were talking, particularly towards the end, was that acknowledgement that actually it is the failures that you probably do learn the most from. I think a lot of people will 
will identify with that. But it goes so much against culturally the story these days. The story is my life is amazing. You know, everything's wonderful. You look at the PR of our leaders, business leaders, political leaders, the Facebook and social media stars. It's all about this perception of the perfect life, the perfect business and living the dream. And it's actually really lovely and refreshing to hear someone who's achieved so much, doing so much to say, do you know what? It's the failures that help you learn. Well, there's, there's, I'd actually build on that as well, because I'm always naturally suspicious of anyone who describes their life in sort of a linear fashion. Like entrepreneurs often talk about, yeah, you know, I started selling lemonade in school and then I went to university and, and I built my first business. And it's just, it's just bullshit, quite frankly. Life doesn't work like that. Life is sort of a messy road through failure, ups and downs, and then stuff happens to you, you react to. I think... I think entrepreneurialism for me is, is about a sort of an open-minded attitude to seeing opportunities and taking risk, and that is different. So we all see the same stuff every day. How we react to it is up to us based on our cultural upbringing, our education, you know, our mindset in that moment, our energy in that moment. So this idea that you have complete agency and control over the things in your life is a myth. And you know, But we try to describe it and reverse engineer it to tell a story to ourselves that we had more agency than we did often. I mean, I often think that people who are successful, particularly on a monetary value, they have to explain their success in terms of they did it so they can justify disproportionate wealth or power. You know, that's a way of reverse engineering their success to feel like they own it. But actually, if there's a bit more humility going, yeah, look, you probably worked hard for it, but to get that job, someone had to resign. You didn't have any control of that for you to step into that. For that deal, I see deals all the time that fall over because of something that's completely out of your control. You know, if someone misses a flight or you know, someone gets ill or someone just changes their mind. There's so much about your life that you don't have control over. And so if you tell your story that your success is fully owned by you, it's just a myth. And we tell ourselves these stories because we probably want to justify paying less tax, living in a big house, sending our kids to certain schools. Now, if that's a personal choice, that's up to you. But also own the fact that you're here because of yourself and you're also here because of others. And then the other thing I'd just state is this idea of failure being noble, though, is we've got to be really careful with that. There's this myth where, you know, failure is also in the US, people say failure is a good thing. You can't fail all your life. You just rubbish at what you do if you fail at everything that you do, or you're not trying hard, you haven't got the ability. But an amount of humility when things go wrong or don't go in your way that you learn from, but you've got to put it right. So failure as a part of a journey to success is important, but I've got to be really careful about that definition that people just don't think, don't hear it and go, oh, it's okay just to be rubbish and fail all the time. So using failure as an opportunity to learn is probably a clearer characteristic of it. Uh, well, when things go well, we all like to take personal credit for that, don't we? Human nature. There is some interesting themes coming through. So we've talked quite a bit about the investment you make in continuous learning and coaching and developing yourself, that kind of growth mindset approach. And that, I think, linked with, okay, well, when I fail, why have I failed? What can I learn from it? How do I apply that moving forward to then improve, to do things better? Are those traits that you think are important entrepreneurial perspective and the reason I'm asking is like I'm really really keen for any aspiring kind of entrepreneurs do you say that those are kind of key stepping stones for for success in entrepreneurialism again these are broad generalizations but I, I think one of the things I've definitely got as a trade is that do the hard stuff in life the stuff that makes you feel uncomfortable 
People won't like that because by definition, we shy away from that. But always put your hand up for stuff. In fact, I look for that these days. If I'm doing something and it's, and it's, it's less frequent now that makes me feel uncomfortable, I really, I really hold that feeling and go to it and explore it and try and push myself into it. Just listening to your own internal narrative and also your physical reactions to stuff. Be present in those and hold them and be aware of them and go towards them because that's where your personal growth comes from. The investing in a football club was one. You know, when that came up, I, I lost some sleep over it. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting because when I, le- I don't, I sleep really well generally. So when I lose sleep, it's not like I'm fitful. My head's thinking through scenarios. So I was waking up early. I was going to my gym and thinking about it. And I loved it. I was doing a balance sheet mentally of the reasons for and against it. And it was a really interesting process because on the whole, I had a really negative emotional reaction to doing it. And I had to explore that for about six weeks to think about what it was about the feeling of doing this. It was about putting myself, you know, in the firing line. It was about revisiting some negative stuff from my child and potentially by being in my town. But it was a really interesting process before I even decided to do it or not, that there was all these voices in my head telling me not to. And so I spent a lot of time just exploring that. And at that point, I worked with a coach or I talked to a mentor and I, or my wife a lot. You know, I go, I'm feeling this about that. What about that sounds genuine? What about that sounds like a negative construct that I need to get around? What about that is constraining my thinking of the possibility of success? And it's just a, it's just a fascinating process to, to, to experience yourself. You don't learn anything by feeling comfortable. Get comfortable with discomfort and recognize it in yourself. I feel it literally in my sternum. So I recognized this about 30 years ago, that when I walk into a room, I feel people as well, their energy. And so, so I listen to that feeling and then, and then I bring it up into my head and I explore it. And you, you have to be comfortable with discomfort and going to the areas you don't know, you don't understand, or things that are difficult to get that growth. And I think that's entrepreneurial, I think, in, in a nutshell, is that doing stuff that isn't a prescribed route that you can follow. One of the amazing privileges now is that that compounds over time. So if I, if I come across an issue, invariably I know somebody, or I've got resources to somebody that can help me now as well. And being at Oxford has just amplified that exponentially that, you know, you can have conversations or access to people that are world experts in stuff. So once you get past a certain threshold, you have a network capability that will perpetuate that as well, which is an amazing privilege that's not lost on me as well. I do love what you've said there about put yourself in those uncomfortable positions. One of the things that we say all the time to our boys when they say, oh, no, and we say, no, 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 you feel the fear, you do it anyway. And that's kind of like our family mantra. And so it's really nice to hear you kind of reflecting that as well. Again, again, I've got to be really careful, it? it's about calibrating that. You don't want your kids to be lunatics as well. But it's okay. actually, yeah, it's, yeah, 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 yeah. No, because I'm right, because I don't want people to take the way, going, you should do all the stuff that's dangerous and scares you. I'm like, that is not what I'm saying. Everything's calibrated. You have to risk calibrate, but it's but it's true, right? Is that resilience comes for kids in particular? Daddy's just go. I'm not going to do it, and I think that's the biggest gift we can try and instill in our kids is what you're doing, which is going. Yeah, look. Sometimes no is the right answer, but but the difficulty in life is working out and calibrating the things that really are too risky. So much of our own personal narrative is saying no to stuff we should be saying yes to. 100%. 100%. Just to clarify, there are some caveats with the fear and do it anyway. You better, you better check, Natasha. They might be setting fire to stuff now while you're doing this. I've got to ask you about Grimsby Town, Jason. 
one of my best friends will never forgive me if I don't. She's a Grimsby town, born and bred, and uh, still goes with her dad, drives over from Manchester. Fantastic. Uh, as a season ticket holder, she can't wait to be able to do that again. And that is despite having two children under the age of three, which is tremendous, I think. So go on then. How will you measure success at Grimsby town? <laughs> Oh, well, tell, tell your friend thanks, by the way. We should have a chat afterwards about maybe when I'm coming over, we should share a lift sometimes. Oh, absolutely. She would love that. She'd tell you what to do, though, by the way. <laughs> well, that's interesting. So, so actually, the success thing is the stuff on the football pitch is not down to me. And I don't, again, in that team building stuff, again, I'm not a football manager, a football coach. So our job is to support the manager, Paul Hurst, and the team he's put together with the resources they need to improve the performances on the pitch. And so we're doing a bunch of stuff around that. So, you know, in a real simple terms, success will mean us improving the product of the football that we play and our league position, etc. So so that's a given. That, though, is probably the starting position for me. I mean, the, the whole experiment in football ownership for me and my partners, that Andrew Pettit is my partner and the shareholder, and then there's a number of people now, both the board members and the CEO were brought in, Debbie, so he's trying to build a coalition of the willing to try and support this endeavour that we've got, which is one, the licence to play and operate is about performing the, you know, improving the forms on the pitch. And then there's a whole ideological underpinning of this, which I think that, you know, there's a bit of evidence in some books written recently that the capitalism has worked in the last 100 years because of our civic institutions. So if you believe in free market ideologies, which I broadly do, but actually the reason that we've been able to do well as societies you know, up until maybe the 80s was that we had civic institutions that bound us, community organised, that bound us together as, as individuals, as society. And yet since the 80s, that's gone away. But one of the few institutions that's endured are football teams. You know, Grimsby Town's 143-year history and there's passionate, if not somewhat smaller, following these days. But, you know, people care about it. I care about it. You know, it's as part of my identity. It's a part of who I am, what I represent. And so... You know, the other part to this will be success on the pitch, but actually that'll give us license to go, oh, how can we reinvigorate the club as a civic institution that can be a beacon of hope, aspiration, pride, that can then be used as a catalyst for broader regeneration projects? They're already ongoing in the area, by the way. This isn't something that we have any any ownership of. We're trying to participate and be a partner in. But, you know, how can we use the sports team from a values leadership, from a performance basis, from a ability to reset what it means in the community? How can we use that as a catalyst for energy into all the activity in, in you know, in regenerating and reinvigorating part of the world that, that I love and care about? The question about success earlier for me personally, success isn't financial for me. That's one measure. But success is how you live your values, how you live your aspiration, how you know what you pass on to your kids emotionally. And the same here. Success will be both on the pitch, but as important for me will be how we represent ourselves in the community. We're going to become a B Corps, hopefully, which is a we're trying to be the first professional sports team in the world that is a B Corps, which is about you know, entrenching both in our legal constitution and our values, the obligation to stakeholders, not only our shareholders, but the broader community, the environment, and, you know, all of the stakeholders in, in the club. So for me, this is about can we set the direction that hopefully is embedded for the next 143 years. Yeah, and then have a bit of fun along the way. It's got to be fun, right, as well. This is, you know, it's the, the life's too short otherwise, but if the football's going well, I'm sure it will be. Well, quite. And Anna and uh, her dad, Richard, will be very pleased that part of that measure of success is, you know, 
reflected on the pitch as well. Had to name drop them there. Good stuff. <laughs> the, 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 some of the principles you've kind of outlined there, are they aligned with some of the conversations you've been having? So I know, I think it was last summer, you started your approach to advise the government a bit on building that post-pandemic. So are those kind of some of the similar themes you've been talking about and from a policy perspective? Or are there other trends, particularly from, I guess, a tech um, perspective? that maybe we should be looking out for as well. Yeah, I mean, it makes me sound rather grand sort of advising the government. I was, I was interviewed, actually, in the precursor to my fellowship, I was interviewed for a report that the government did. It was the Building Back Better report. So, and actually, I met Nairi Woods, who runs above Atlet School, as a result of that process and got offered the fellowship. So that was an input as an entrepreneur about what, what some of the views. So there, there is a report out there. It's a really good report written by Nairi and Richard Collier-Keywood, which is a governmental white paper on... How, some suggestions on how we build back the economy. I'm trying to think, like in a, almost in a post-politics world, that part of the part of the reason that I went back to university is because I was trying to understand myself the diagnosis of why we've ended up with our politics, the Brexit situation, with how globalisation has worked or failed us, and how we think about drawing a line under that somewhat, and thinking about you know how we cast ourselves forward. And the model, the mental model that I think I'm most attracted to is that you need. You need central government organisation, you need the power, the scale, the convening and also the monetary power in central government in Whitehall. And I think that's been shown in some of the deals, whether that's the free ports in Grimsby or, you know, the town centre deal. But in, as important, and this is the bit that people seem to miss, is that you need, you know, energy, convening and community spirit to meet that central organising. And we've seen through COVID, right, that you know, we've got a conservative government that's that's making social spending on a level that was incomprehensible to any even Labour supporters two years ago. So we've we've clearly seen the power and the need for central government. But equally, I think we need to reinvigorate the ownership and the action orientation within our communities as well. One of, one of the things that we know is that the world is accelerating. The combination of technological acceleration, globalisation, climate change means that this linear model towards execution just doesn't work anymore the world's coming out as faster so the ability for central government to set the conditions and parameters of innovation of of renewal of regeneration is important and then we need to own it collectively in our communities and i'm optimistic about that because i think that what's covid shown is people desirous of it you know for all the all the all the whole of the last few years i'm personally witnessing a desire for common ground and commonality and shared endeavour and shared practice. And I think the football club can be part of that. But more broadly, I think that's where I think we're hopefully going to see a renewal uh, in our civic engagement that's required. Because well. I think people are just a bit bored and fed up with where we've ended up with our politics and our realities. We've had an acceleration in ways of working in the last 18 months that, you know, sort of lots of cool tech businesses were doing remote working years ago. But I think that's a wonderful recalibration that every business is now having to think about how how we work and that's brilliant right because it means that all those people have been forced into offices in the last 40 years have now been at home and taking their kids to school and being better parents and better husbands and better wives and, or better partners or just in having more in their lives as they're single and i think we've just started to realize that won't go back in the box now so that's a good example of you know people looking at value in life in the broadest sense about how we spend our time yeah look i, I think there's a long way to go but i do I look for patterns and, and pattern recognition around something's changed in the last five years, both in the combination of how the markets are thinking about measuring investments differently through ESG, but also through in our day-to-day -day lives. I think we've all a forced reflection on our values and what's important. And I think 
are politicians going to have to react to that as a result of that? It's really interesting because those trends that you're talking about there, when we look at the, the, the kind of trends across advanced engineering and technology from a talent acquisition and talent attraction perspective, absolutely resonate to attract the best professionals. You've got to offer more than a great salary, a great package. It's about wider impact that we are seeing increasingly that people want to know what are your social impact credentials. Genuine, not greenwash, not, you know, token, you know, here's a bit of cash once a month. It's that kind of move back to community as career being equally important as what, what do I get paid at the end of the day? I'm incredibly optimistic about where that takes us in the future for, you know, our kids in a few years time when this is the, the dials hopefully move through further forward. So really fascinating stuff, Jason. I've got one last question for you. If the tables were turned and you were this side of our virtual uh, virtual studio and hosting a podcast like this, who would be your dream podcast guest to interview for their insights into progression and progressing lives everywhere. Only because it's front of mind, but I think Damien Hughes from the um, High Performance Podcast, just because I've been introduced to him recently. But I think, I think both his personal background in terms of look, he's you know he's an academic, but he's he's clearly worked really hard to put himself up in that situation. But also, he's obviously a student of human behaviour and how the mind works and how you improve. And then just like he's, he's had a range of conversations in the last few years and insights into to be able to cherry pick, taking the lessons from some people that have ostensibly been incredibly successful. That would probably be probably be my first. I mean, there's, mil, there's millions, but that would probably be the one that I haven't put on the spot. That would be the one I would think about. Yeah, sorry. It's the question I never give people in advance because I like to have that spontaneous answer. And Yeah, no, it's good. I love that that's the answer you've given because Damien actually joined a colleague of mine to record an episode of Progressing Lives Everywhere podcast. Brilliant. Yeah, he did a session for the business at our AGM at Christmas and he was outstanding. He's a great guy and very generous, actually, with his insights. So, yes, thank you for that answer, Jason. I appreciate that one. That works, doesn't it? Absolutely. The one you didn't give me looks like the most scripted one of the of the whole podcast. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jason, thank you so much. I'm sure that we could keep going for hours, but I really appreciate your time. It's been fascinating to talk to you and thanks for joining me today. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Natasha. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Progressing Lives Everywhere, brought to you by Moria Bond. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please be sure to subscribe, like, and leave a review. Every time you do, it helps others find the podcast. For more information on Moria Bond's specialist services and to access the podcast show notes, head over to amoriabond.com. Join us next time as we continue to progress lives everywhere.